If you've got your Bible open to the book of Jude, we're going to read through it. Jude uh, writes this letter. Oh, I forget every single week. During this sermon series, we're naming all of our sermon titles, which no one ever remembers sermon titles, but I'm naming them possible names for your indie band. And so Burnt Fingers, I thought was kind of a good one, and it fits. Not my best, not my best, all right? But, uh, but it's, it's all I had to work with this week. So uh, it is, uh, next week is one of my favorites, but uh, you'll have to come back next week, I guess, for that. So, uh, or listen online, because we podcast everything. But the... Uh, um, Jude is writing uh, to a very specific church, like we believe uh, from reading it, it's what we try to understand, that there's a church in mind that he writes this letter to. And Jude is a leader in the very other church, not the top leader. That would be a guy named James, and then a guy named Peter, and then a guy named Paul. But Jude was the brother of Jesus, and so he grew up with that. His name was actually probably Judas. Um, but that guy became famous. The name Judas became famous for killing Jesus, and so you can imagine people would be like, oh, you can just call me Jude, you know, that'd be fine. Uh, So um, I'm going to read through this. We're going to do verses 17 to 23 today. And Jude has been, so you know, like up till now, it's just a wildly negative book. Jude is saying, like, there are these um, immoral teachers that have gotten into the church and are speaking uh, to the church and teaching them, Uh, just that there is no moral law anymore. They would say, like, we don't follow the ceremonial or religious laws in the Old Testament. And those are laws like um, uh, not eating seafood or offering certain sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. We don't do those things anymore. Uh, We don't take their their calendar. Those are religious or ceremonial laws. Do you think Jesus fulfilled all that, that that was pointing to Jesus? These teachers that had gotten into the early church said, all of the laws. So that includes the moral laws in the Old Testament. And specifically, they wanted to do away with the sexually immoral laws of the Old Testament and say that just have just an attitude of license towards everything. And that isn't the way that Jesus taught or lived. And so these teachers, Jude is calling them out as being evil and working at actually not, not even just neutral, not even just being like they're not bad Christians. They're actually working against Christianity and working against who Jesus is. So up till now, it's been really, really a downer reading this letter. And now this week and next week, Jude kind of gets a little bit positive. He had a snack, I guess, and he had a Snickers bar and now he's doing better. But so I'm going to read this and then we'll talk through it a bit and uh, see where it takes us. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, the scoffers, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, again, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. He turns this, Jude turns this from being just bad, 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 bad to what should you actually do about it? These people are evil, these people are evil. So this is how you actually handle that kind of a situation. Uh, the people who are masquerading as uh, what is good, but they, it just isn't good. And he begins in verse 17 by saying, you must remember, beloved. 
And, the, and that beloved comes up twice, and that's a kind of an important thing that we'll talk about in a second. But he actually tells him, you have to remember the things that you were taught, the things that you were told, which is kind of, I think, should be like a life verse, like remember the things that are true. Because sometimes life gets so busy or life gets so overwhelming or so in your face, it's, it's really hard to remember the things that you know are true, right? Uh, this happens like on a, on a micro scale. It happens in our life just with the way that we live or it happens on a micro scale with like sports teams and stuff like that. Like we know what works, but now we're going to do this other thing where running backs are allowed to throw and stuff like that. Like we just are going to... <laughs> uh, but they try to do something... And they forget, oh yeah, don't you remember? Don't we remember, right? And sometimes we need that call back. And Jude's kind of giving them that simple call back. And he's calling them back to remember the predictions of the apostles. And the apostles would be like the primary leaders of the Christian movement from the very beginning. And they had apparently predictions, or some Bibles would say prophecies, about what was going to happen. And that they said that there were going to be these scoffers, and that what those scoffers are for them are people who like hate religion or hate morality. They said, in the last times, there's going to be these scoffers who are going to say things. But don't forget that you were told, in the last time, there's going to be these scoffers who say things. And that last times, a lot of us get hung up on that, right? The last times, so you understand, when the Bible uses the last times, it's talking about the time between Jesus' ascension originally, when Jesus lived on this earth, he died and was resurrected and ascended, until the time when he returns and descends to the earth. This is all the last times, okay? So it's not like the last times that we think about it, like when the microwave's dinging down, this is the last five seconds, right? It's not like that. Like, it's like we live in the last times. That's just the name of the era of history that we live in according to the Bible. And in these last times, there will be people who despise religion or despise morality who will be scoffers and will say negative things or evil things about the faith and about Jesus and about God. And so when we hear, hear those things or see those things, and this, there's a new atheism that's gained popularity in our culture today, the Christian response to that is to go, oh yeah, we were told about you. Like there usually is a lot of panic about this, Right? Like Tom Hanks gets a bad haircut and stars in a couple of movies from a, the, the Da Vinci Code movies that are complete fiction, and yet I get emails, hey, pastor, help your people not lose their faith because of the Da Vinci Code. And I'm like, it's an imaginary freaking book. If they're losing their faith over that, I should be fired, right? Like, I am not, I'm not going to help you avoid fiction. <laughs> oh my gosh, but... It's like it's a worse commentary on Christianity that we're scared of fiction books than, any, than anything else. Okay, anything else. But there is like there is this moment where we realize, oh yeah, we were told, or oh yeah, we remember they said this was going to happen. They said we were eventually going to hit this point. When you see people who are starting out things that are new in life, sometimes they tell them eventually this might get difficult. And that sounds like it's pessimistic, but it actually could be encouraging because when it gets difficult, they're not surprised. Oh yeah, this, I remember this isn't going to be so, di like, I remember that they told me this was coming and so I'm ready for it and I don't have to worry about it. But these scoffers come and the scoffers, what they do, and this is kind of how you can tell who they are. This is verse 19. It is these who cause division, 
They are worldly people, worldly people who are devoid of the Spirit. You can look at church leaders and ask yourself, are they causing division? Are they actually trying to divide the church up? And usually this is happening like morally, not just doctrinally. Because we have, we're like the, the church is all divided all over doctrinally, right? We are Wesleyan Arminian and our Lutheran friends are more Calvinist and our Catholic friends are neither of those. And, uh, but all of that isn't a moral division. It's a doctrinal division as far as how we understand the same thing happens and we all end up in the same place, but we like to argue because it sells books, right? <laughs> but there's a, that's not the division that this is talking about. This is what we're talking about, about moral division that's actually like messing with the church and its effectiveness. I would say doctrinal diversity is actually a good thing for the church. If everyone believed the way that we believe, I'd be more worried than okay, like as far as a Wesleyan-Arminian understanding of sanctification. Nobody cares, <laughs> right? But if we actually, well, you care, but you don't know that you care. Uh, but there is this, if we, everyone believed the individual, open-handed, not important things all the same, that wouldn't be as good as having, I think, doctrinal diversity where we have people who do different things. If everyone worshipped with the same kind of band as us, I don't think that would be a good thing. Because there's other people who live in other cultures where this is, it doesn't make any sense and it isn't their cultural language. It isn't the language or the, the melody that's playing inside of them. And so we believe that diversity is good, but division and pushing for division isn't good. That's why we are part of a group of churches in Albany. Not us against them, but all of us working towards the same end for people to know Jesus and know him in a saving way and know that he loves them and has a dream for their life and a hope for them. So these leaders who come in aren't just saying, oh, we should all believe the exact same things and doctrinally be all the same and worship all the same. They're actually dividing people on moral issues and issues of like actual life and death. So they're dividers. These bad leaders are dividers, splitting people up, splitting churches up, doing their best to keep people isolated. And then there are worldly people, meaning they have a love for the world that's greater than their love for Jesus, and then they are devoid of the Spirit, which is kind of a great insult for someone, I think, like you are devoid of something. Devoid of the Spirit would mean that they have no ability or they have no infilling of the Holy Spirit. This actually is like a, a pretty harsh call out saying they're not even Christians because to be a Christian is to be filled with the Spirit of God. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life, meaning inside you somehow, and in Sunday school we teach them there's a God-shaped hole in your heart. Medically that's not true, but you know, metaphorically it's, it's, it's kind of there. But uh, we, we believe that the Holy Spirit indwells people, and the Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, convicts us of sin and righteousness and the coming judgment. So it lets us know the things that are bad, it lets us know the things that are good, and we just have this inner sense of the Holy Spirit showing us this is good or this is bad, and of judgment, knowing where we're going. Like we have this inner conviction or this inner assurance, knowing what is coming, that this is the last times, and someday God is going to put everything to rights, including all of the people. 
And so these people who are devoid of the Spirit have no sense of what is sin and what is not sin, or what is sin and what is goodness or righteousness. They have no sense of the impending return of Christ and no sense of the future or the hope that Jesus brings in that. These are the people that Jude finally says, all right, so here's how you avoid those people. And then he goes through and he actually says, beloved, remember he said, beloved, remember these things. And now he says, beloved, build yourself up in the faith. Take responsibility for yourself and build yourself up in the faith, praying in the spirit, which some people think is a really charismatic thing as far as like it's um, raise your hand. And some people will say you like speaking a different language or something like that. It's kind of an exciting, charismatic kind of thing. I think praying in the Spirit is actually praying in line with how the Holy Spirit himself would pray. Like sometimes we pray and it sounds more like grocery shopping than praying in the Spirit. Like, God, give me this. God, give me this. God, give me this. Over in aisle seven, God, pick me up a little bit of that and give me a good day tomorrow too, all right? Like all these things. And and I don't know if you have any relationships like that, but that's between boss and assistant, (laughs) where you're the boss and God's your assistant. And if that's your relationship with God, that's a really dangerous place to be, to say, God, I'm going to be the boss and you're going to be the assistant. That usually goes well for one of those two and it's God, not you. (laughs) When we approach God, if we have a relationship with God, in the way that the Holy Spirit and God and Jesus have relationship in the Trinity, perfect relationship, then we approach prayer praying in the Spirit, in praying that the way that the Spirit of God would actually lead us to pray. It doesn't mean, meaning we pray with God's agenda, not our agenda. And that doesn't mean we present our requests, our petitions and our prayers to God. We do that. The Bible actually commands that. And I would imagine in the Trinity, those kinds of things are talked about and requested and sought after because of the different roles of the different members of the Trinity. I just imagine that. That's not doctrinally true. Don't. All right. So, anyways, let's say it is. There you go. All right. You can email me if you disagree. All right. Uh, but there is this if we believe that our understanding of God is like he's a waiter, I think that falls short of actually praying in the Spirit. And praying in the Spirit, according to the Bible, is normative for the Christian life. Like, a normal Christian prays in the Spirit. It's abnormal in, for Christianity if you pray not in the Spirit, which is to pray with your own agenda. Does this make sense? The most like, simple way to explain this is if you're praying before your Friday night football game, right, and you pray to win. I don't mean to be rude, but God could care less if you win. It's probably better for you character-wise if you lose, right? So maybe you should pray that you lose. (laughs) That would be a funny prayer. Next time I'm invited to pray before a football game, I'll do that. God, please help us endure this butt kicking. (laughs) Because, God, we are not prepared the way they are. (laughs) Lift them up and give them victory. And then I'll never be invited back. It's kind of a, it's like doing the dishes really bad and you don't have to do that anymore. But there is this, praying in the Spirit doesn't, I mean, that's the most simple example in history, isn't it? Like, that's almost silly. We see that. But then in our lives, there's times when we pray, God, this is what I want. And God, this is how I want it to happen. 
And we might not have the willingness to say, God, this is what I want, and this is how I want it to happen. But however you say this is going to go down, I hope that you'll just carry me through this. This is Jesus the night before he was betrayed, praying, God, if someone else can drink from this cup, and their metaphor cup would be God's will, like that's how, with how they believe the, and metaphor that talked about it. God, if this cup can pass, all right, but if not, I'll drink it. Like, if my life can go this way, that'd be awesome. And Jesus is referring to not dying on the cross. But if, if that doesn't happen, I'm good with that, God. And you can imagine yourself praying the same thing, just like Jesus. But Jesus then says, but if that's what's your will, then just carry me through that. And sometimes we think, God, I want this, and I want this kind of life. And it's harder to back up and say, but if that life isn't what's best for me and for you and for the people around me and for me to be effective as a witness of Jesus Christ, then I pray, God, that you'll give me everything I need to be able to get through the life that you have for me. Does that make sense? That kind of prayer is what prayer is for the Christian. The other side of prayer where you have like a laundry, a grocery list or something where you're like, here, just go through these items. God, give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this. That's abnormal prayer. Like if someone's praying like that and you're with them, you should open your eyes and be like, this is abnormal. Right? <laughs> like just stop. It would probably deepen your relationship, but it, it is. It is not the way that prayer works for a person who follows Jesus. So we're to build ourselves up and we're to pray and we're to keep ourselves, and this is the center part of this whole self, keeping yourself in the love of God. This is why Jude says, beloved, remember these things. Beloved, build yourselves up because you're loved. And Jude isn't talking about that he loves them. It's that they're loved by God. Being loved by God, you might think this is silly. My small group talked about this a lot. My life group, sorry, talked about this a lot last week. Being loved by God sometimes is actually maybe the most difficult part of Christianity. Like believing that God loves you. Like actually living in that reality. And we kind of, in our life group, this is kind of where we ended up. And there's this great author named Brendan Manning. And uh, he actually says, and, and he writes books and preaches and those kinds of things. But he actually said one time, when you get to heaven, uh, Jesus will be standing there, and the question he'll have for you isn't like, how good are you or did you check the boxes? The question he'll have for you is, did you believe that I love you? And that's the defining question for a Christian. For a Christian, you back all the way up to, and no matter how life goes, no matter how the things around me are going, do I believe that God loves me? And if I believe that God loves me, then the way I react to the situation that I'm in is probably a lot different than if I don't believe that God loves me. And I know you believe God loves you, but do you believe that God is mad at you sometimes? And not mad at you like in a loving way, <laughs> but do you believe that God like sometimes smites you or like doesn't lightning bolt you or things like just does rude stuff to you because he's mad at you for some reason. To believe that is not to believe that God loves you. And I know God disciplines his children, yada, 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 yada. But if you live, I shouldn't yada, yada scripture verses, but if you live 
in, but I believe God loves me, so what are you going to do about it? But if you believe that God loves you, then your whole approach to life changes, and I think your whole approach to talking about your faith changes. When people say, why do you do this, or why do you live this way, or why do you believe that fantasy stuff? The answer isn't, oh, I've got this doctrine, or oh, let me explain this, or that like that. It's like, I live this way, and I believe this way, because I, I honestly believe that God loves me. Like, I honestly believe that. And I don't know what your perception or your thoughts about God are, and I don't know what, how your life and your choices have affected what you think God thinks of you, but to follow Jesus at a base point is to believe that God loves you. And in that love, we're built up, we pray in the Spirit, and in that love, the Scripture continues here in verse 20, that we, or 21, that we wait for God's mercy, meaning we wait for eternal life in God's love. And I live in the reality of God loving me, waiting for the day when I will know that, like I know it kind of like opaquely right now, but I will know it fully and clearly someday, and I await for that. And so we have this doctrinally and morally and emotionally and spiritually building up of ourselves that Jude actually speaks to as an answer to evil and immoral teaching and guidance in the world and in the church that we build up ourselves in these way. And then Jude actually pushes past that for these last two verses, uh, verse 22 and 23, where he actually tells us then to have mercy on those who doubt. Our approach to people who are struggling to believe that God loves them, who doubt it, is to have mercy on them. It is not to hate on them is to have the same mercy on them that we believe God would have on us if we were doubting. And then others were to save by snatching them out of the fire. And the fire is a biblical like metaphor for judgment. We grab them out of the fire and pull them out of the things in their life. And then others, uh, we show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh, which is a common biblical metaphor for like impurity like when you get to heaven the the bible says you're going to have this pure white robe and and there's kind of this you're pure then and impure now there is this push from just being inside of you to actually being outside of you meaning to be a christian isn't just to pray in the spirit to live in god's love and all those things it's actually to be engaged with the world and saving others from it See, when we're faced with evil or when we're faced with sin and sinners in the world, there's a natural kind of reaction to withdraw, isn't there? Like, I, that's really bad, so I'm going to hang out with my really good friends. Or that's, those people do that thing that is sin or sinning, and so I'm going to cut off the relationship, and I'm going to actually hang out with these people who don't do those things. What Jude actually says is you grab those people out of the fire, you're all your like for a Christian spiritually, you should have no hair on your fingers or on your hands at all. Maybe you just shouldn't. Period. But anyways, you grab and pull them out of the fire. You reach in and pull them out. Notice the Bible doesn't say get in the fire. All right. 
There was a, I had a friend that did, in my youth ministry program, did a whole article that there were these, there was a group of boys on the East Coast who wanted to have a prayer time together, and they were doing ecstasy beforehand because it made their prayer time so much better. That would be getting into the fire, <laughs> right? That would not be what Jesus was dreaming for those boys, those misguided boys who apparently got caught because it was a news story. Uh, but there is, and, and this isn't like super far-fetched. I know people who said, well, I'm going to go and live in that sinful way so that I can reach people in that sinful culture. And that's, that's getting into the fire. That's not what the Bible's calling us to do. The Bible's not calling you to sin. The Bible actually says you should not even look like you sin. But the common criticism of Jesus, the common criticism of Jesus was that he hung out with sinners and drunks. Is the common criticism of the Christian that they hang out with sinners? It's not, right? Like nobody's ever criticized me that way except for when I'm with you guys. <laughs> but nobody's ever criticized me and said, you spend too much time with sinners, <laughs> right? It's kind of this weird moment because we've turned Christianity into this thing where you hang out with saints. Like I'm a Christian, and so I hang out with other Christians, which is understandable because the most important thing in my life is Jesus. And so I want to talk about Jesus with other people. I want to hang out with people who share that common desire. It makes sense. And Jesus hung out with those same kind of people. He hung out with people who loved Jesus, who loved God and wanted to serve him and wanted to live for him, right? But for the Christian, there's a two-part approach to overcoming evil and sin and sinners, both in the world and in the church, is that you build yourself up and then you actually reach out to other people. You are built up in what we call evangelicalism, you are understanding of the gospel and, it's a, uh, and the hope that's in the gospel, but you're also spread out in evangelism. Sharing with other people, grabbing people from the fire and bringing them in. Because you might think, oh, this world is hard or these things in this world is tough and so I'm going to just work on myself and build myself up or my small clan and here's my fortress walls and this is what I'm going to do. But what that does is actually isolates and divides, which is the very, like, it's the very criticism that this passage begins with. It is these people who bring divisions into the church. And then when you've divided, you lose your ability to actually multiply, which is the command of God to go into the world and make disciples. And so the Christian isn't someone who's just built up for their own sake and their own safety and their own security. We find that safety and security as we're moving into the world. As we're reaching to the people who are furthest, furthest from the gospel. Which really is the story of the scripture. Unlikely, rough around the edges, like bad people who Jesus reached out to, whose lives changed, who turned towards God. It is not Christianity and the Grove Church is not the club of the good people. It is not where all the good saints hang out. It's where this group of people get together 
who have this common criticism that they hang out with the wrong people, that they're friends with people who would never become a Christian. You've, when I say it that way, you probably have those friends, right? Because we don't label people sinners in our culture. Like there are no sinners in our culture, right? Like if, because we get to be our own moral judgment, nobody is actually bad because you get to decide if you're good or bad. And then we have this common civil religion that actually says, nope, you're out or nope, you're in. And right now Christianity's out of civil religion, which is kind of a fun time for us. You might not think that. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> but there is this, when, when we think about our friends and our family, I can tell you my friends and family who will never become Christians. Never. And really what that statement is, is my lack of faith in the changing power and the transformative work of Jesus. But I can tell you the people who will never become Christians. And don't tell anyone but my friend's parents used to say that about someone I know. <laughs> and I bet a lot of you that's your story too. Right? Like the way and your experience would lead you to say, that person never going to be a Christian. And then one day, oh, they just decide. And then your friends look you up on Facebook and say, how's it bleep bleep going? And you say, well, I'm a pastor now. <laughs> it's, all, it, it's fun every single time. <laughs> because just as we were, that's who we're trying to reach. That's who we're reaching out for. It's not because they're dangerous. Those people aren't dangerous. The world and its disarray and its disorganization and its chaos, which is led by evil and led by who we believe is Satan, that is dangerous. The people are in danger. And the gospel is an optimistic hope for them. So I'd like to pray for us in that way. And I'm going to pray that your life would actually be dangerous this week, that you would be able to hang out with some people who will never become Christians. <laughs> and then that God might surprise you someday. Does that make sense? So let's stand and we'll pray together and then we'll continue to worship. Jesus, we thank you for your patience, your mercy, for your spirit enduring in us and with us. We thank you for your belief in our working in your gospel. And God, all of us can probably name some people just in our heads right now who are the furthest thing from a person who would know God or know Jesus. Like the furthest thing. And I pray that you would deepen our friendships with those people. And that somehow, maybe, that your spirit would somehow work in their life. That the deepening of our relationship with those people who are so far, and I mean people maybe who've been burned by the church, or people who are agnostic and atheist, and people who are well-read and, and smart and too smart to be a Christian, and people whose lives have been so rough that how could they ever believe that God loves them because their circumstances show the opposite. Those people, God, who are furthest from everything, everything that is you, the people who are like the Apostle Paul, who are like Zacchaeus, 
who are like the woman at the well, who are like basically every character in the Bible that Jesus encounters. I pray, God, that they would have an encounter with you and that you would make much of their life, that they would have an encounter with you that changes them and changes us in just knowing them. By your grace we pray, amen.